Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now. Your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Monday, March 18th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we're talking to author and professor Jonathan Metzl about how Trump's policies are a health hazard to his own supporters. Jonathan Metzl is a professor of sociology and psychiatry and the director of the Center for Medicine, Health and Society at Vanderbilt University. He just published his newest book, Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. It's about how Trump's agenda depends on policies that render many of his own supporters, specifically the white working class, expendable. Metzl explains that counter to what many white working class voters believe, GOP policies are in fact making their lives harder, sicker, and shorter. So in today's episode, I sat down with Professor Metzl to understand what's behind this. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So you just came out with a book that's getting a lot of good press. It's called Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And based on that same research, you also published an article for Tonic here at Vice. So In both of these pieces of work, you are writing about the rise of what you call white backlash politics in the South and the Midwest. And I want to start there just to get our listeners kind of all on the same page. What do you mean when you say backlash politics? Well, backlash politics is a term that's been coined long before I wrote this book, and it tracks a trajectory of a kind of political under, initially an undercurrent in the South, which became kind of a master narrative. And the story was basically a politics that was anti-government, anti-immigrant, pro-gun. And the underlying tension, which now has blown into full view, is this idea that White Americans are being displaced, their interests are being overcome by people rushing into the country, or just this idea that minorities and immigrants are usurping resources undeservedly. Now, this had been, an, as I mentioned, a narrative in the South for quite some time, and other people before me had, had written about it. But what I think is important about what's happened, particularly since 2008, 2010, which is where my book starts, is that political positions that were once relatively fringe positions, very, very strongly pro-gun positions with no no background checks or anything, positions that are anti-healthcare reform, anti-Medicaid expansion, radical tax cuts. These positions became majority positions and took over places in, in state policy. And what I show is that when these politics worked their way into state-level policies, ironically, the lives of white working-class people, the people who were supposed to be made great again by these politics, their lives became harder, sicker, and in many instances, shorter. 
Yeah, it's a pretty striking thesis. Um, and, you know, as you said, these are the very politics that have become so central to Trump's rise to power. So we're going to get to kind of the crux of what you're talking about with racial resentment as we move through this interview. But first, I want to start out with just some case studies you did about some of these major topics and policies. So healthcare, taxes, and guns. So I want to start with the Affordable Care Act. And you studied people's rejection of the ACA in Nashville, which is where you live. And I'm curious, what did you learn there in Nashville kind of about the difference in people's political perceptions and then the kind of reality, the actual health outcomes of Tennessee white working class people? Sure. Well, um, my colleagues and I started doing focus groups around the time that the Affordable Care Act was supposedly put into law. So when the Supreme Court gave its stamp of approval on the Affordable Care Act, we started doing focus groups around uh, around Nashville, but not just in the city of Nashville, but in rural areas and suburbs. And we were talking to white and black people who stood to benefit from the Affordable Care Act. So we did groups with quite medically ill, chronically ill white men who were suffering from chronic medical conditions, um, and also a correlate of groups of African-American men, and just ask them, hey, here's this new healthcare plan. Politics aside, it has the potential to get you better treatment, to possibly pay for your prescriptions, which are leading to medical bankruptcy. What are your thoughts about it? And what we found were pretty striking differences. When we did the groups for African-American men, almost to a person, their sense was, We support this potential legislation because it has the possibility of benefiting everyone. They didn't say it's going to help black communities. They said it could help society. Having everybody insured is a a net benefit. And so their language was much more about society as a whole than it was about a particular group. And it was complicated when we talked to the groups of white men because we definitely found a diversity of opinions. On one hand, we found people who were had a lot of racial resentment. I mean, I'll I'll never forget the story of one man who I call Trevor in the book, who himself was quite medically ill. He came to the group wearing an uh, an oxygen cannula um, on his nose. He had severe, um, severe medical conditions. Other people in the group had liver failure, lung disease, etc. And when I said, hey, here's this legislation that might help you, his first answer was, well, I'm really, really medically sick, but there's no way I'm going to support a program where my tax dollars are going to go to Mexicans or welfare queens. That was a quote that I heard numerous times. And you know, I, I, I've thought a lot about that in the aftermath because here was somebody who was quite literally on death's doorstep and actually didn't survive the, the span mm-hmm. of the research. And this idea of what it meant to be white in this particular hierarchy, this idea that immigrants were going to take what he had, was so powerful that he was willing to forego his own his own possibility of, of health care. And so, it you know, I, I wasn't there to judge anybody, but I did try to think what idea is so powerful that in a moment of your most existential need, you're going to fall back on an ideology in which you yourself literally lay down on the tracks? Now, I want to be very clear. That's not every person we spoke with. There were there was a variety of opinions. But, but the interesting thing about the white working class groups is people very often answered in terms of their own group and not in terms of society mm-hmm. at large. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that powerful idea that, you know, would make someone who's actually dying feel that they wanted to reject 
something like the ACA and and then, you know, other policies that you go into later, like guns and taxes, too. But talk to us a little bit about this construction of whiteness and its history and then how you see it functioning now, not just with this one individual, but kind of like in your in your larger research. There's a very long history, particularly in the South, of narratives that tell white working class people that they are their own agents, that they shouldn't align with anybody. It goes all the way back to, for example, the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, where W.E.B. Du Bois, for example, wrote a book where he said the white working class uh, have a wage, and that wage is that they get to call themselves white, and that stops them from forming common cause with newly freed slaves, because imagine if all people got together based on socioeconomic interests, not on race. They would rise up and have a tremendous powerful force that would then let them extract concessions from the elites. And that is something that's played out through the South again and again and again, through the civil rights era, through the advent of social programs. And so in part, there's something that's not new about about a group of African-American men talking about society and a group of white men or groups of white men just talking about their own interests and not about society. It plays into particular historical trajectories. What's different about now and what I argue in the book is that these policies are now in one way shortening lifespans in the South to remarkable degrees. The data I have in the book is actually pretty shocking. I crunch a lot of data and I show that the rejection of the Affordable Care Act in Tennessee, where I'm doing the research, shortens the life of every white citizen of the state by two to three weeks. So it's a it's an aggregate problem that's shortening people's lifespans. But the other part that I argue is, here's an example of a very failed health policy. And instead of saying, what can we do to make it better? Mm -hmm. These become the templates for the Trump administration's taking the policies from the South and nationalizing them. Mm. And so these become canaries in the coal mine for the kind of lessons that we are now learning as an entire nation. Right. And, And as you said, like pitting the white working class against people of color, working class people of color, low income people of color. And I'm curious, so you kind of describe this dynamic as a win at all costs construction of whiteness. And I'm curious if you can tell us who are the real winners in this equation, who is actually benefiting from these GOP policies that have become national, since we know from your research that so many people are not benefiting. Part of what I mean by this idea of a win at all costs is that the, the construction of identity around rejecting the Affordable Care Act or pro-gun, et cetera, didn't allow any room for compromise. So even in the focus groups that we did, every once in a while, somebody would say, gosh, it would be great if we had if we had health care <laughs> or you know, I'm really pro-gun, but what's wrong with a background check? It's just like a driver's license. And when anybody or never anybody would say that, the rest of the group would turn around and say, what are you talking about? That's not that's not our position. And so what we see now is that in a lot of these positions, they become not just debates about policy or health policy, which is what they should be. They're debates about identity. Mm. We are white because we are pro-gun. We are white because we're against uh, Obamacare. Now, That is a powerful narrative that, as you suggest in your great question, benefits certain people and, at least from a health perspective, harms other people. And so part of what I try to show in the book 
is that the success of the entire GOP platform depends on white working class people laying down their lives to support the bigger aims that benefit wealthy white Americans and corporations. And I say that because can you imagine if when the Affordable Care Act came out, white people in the South and other people in the South would have said, you know, we're Republican, but we deserve better health care and we support, you know, the, the Medicaid expansion or we, we support getting some help paying for our prescriptions. Can you imagine if people said we're pro-gun, but we think there should be regulations on gun laws or, yeah, we're Republican and we maybe support tax cuts, but we also want that money to come back to pay for our own roads, bridges and schools the entire GOP platform would fall apart. And so what I try to show in the book is that the success of this bigger platform actually depends on a politics that makes white working class bodies expendable. Right. So I want to go back and talk about some more of your case studies and some of the data that you found. I want to talk about guns and specifically in your tonic piece for for Vice here, you talk about Trump's pro-gun politics in Missouri and how they've affected people's safety and health there. So what were your findings in that state in particular? This section was very important to me in researching and writing the book. I myself am from Missouri. I grew up in Kansas City. And the Kansas City I grew up in had some people who were pro-gun, some people who were anti-gun, um, some people who had complex opinions that were somewhere in the middle. And the world that I lived in at the time found a way to accommodate everybody. There were certainly long traditions of people who believed strongly in the Second Amendment and were hunters, and other people who were terrified when they were they were around a gun. And somehow we all figured out a way largely to make it work. And what happened over the course of the Missouri that I grew up in was that there was an, you know, a kind of infusion of very staunch rightist politics. And part of it was about economics and immigration and government, as I was talking about before. But a lot of this was driven by this rhetoric from the NRA that even the most common sense gun regulations are an affront to people's constitutional rights. Missouri used to have among the most reasonable permit policies in the country. People had to go be interviewed just to see if they had the right to carry a gun. And most people got the permit. But what happened starting in 2007 is a staunch NRA-driven agenda overturned pretty much every gun policy you can think of to the point where people were able to open and conceal carry in many parts of Missouri, and they were pushing bills that you didn't even need a permit to do so. It's like, hey, you're 14, go go drive a car. You don't need any any training or any insurance or anything like that. And so part of what I, what I studied in the book was stories about what happened, not just to rates of everyday injury and death, which is a very important part of the story. Mm -hmm. um, certainly with the data I show in the book shows the tremendous cost of easy access to guns for people, um, particularly in white rural communities, because what happened was all kinds of gun death went up. But the untold story was that the biggest group of victims were white working class men in rural areas who had nearly epidemic rates of gun suicide, mm. and that didn't get reported. That's where the wow. whiteness part comes in. Right. And so part of it was a story about whiteness. But the other thing I did in the book was went and talked to people just about what it meant for people's everyday interactions to have people walking around armed all the time. And I found some pretty shocking, uh, some, some pretty shocking findings. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those? Sure. Findings? Yeah. Well, I went to St. Louis and Kansas City and Columbia urban areas, and I 
talked to people in African-American communities, and they pretty roundly found, it's funny because the stereotype that the NRA uses a lot is be afraid of carjackers and thugs and gangbangers, very racial tropes that Mm -hmm. they use. But it turned out when I went into black communities and said, what do you feel about all these guns around? They were terrified of white people walking around armed. They saw it as a form of racial intimidation. Mm -hmm. So I talked to one man who told me, I don't go to Sam's Club anymore because there were all these white men strolling down the aisles with their guns in their holsters like it was the Wild West. And I was worried that they were going to, you know, draw on me or something like that. And so the black communities where I was talking to people, they actually were much more in favor of taking guns out of the public sphere. They had no problem with home gun ownership, but their idea was basically, this is a form of intimidation. And of course, black communities thinking about uh, Ferguson also, you know, the question links also to police violence as well. On the other side, I went to very pro-gun communities and I talked to people who were in the most painful relationships to guns mm. that you can imagine. I, I, I sat in on support groups for people who were gun supporters, but who had lost very often children mm-hmm. to gun suicide. And the stories were heartbreaking. I mean, I just, it was, it was, there was so much pain and loss and bravery in, in those stories, but people who their kids found their gun and they ended up goofing around with it and accidentally shooting themselves and losing a seven or eight year old child um, or a teenage boy who got broken up with by his girlfriend and went and grabbed his dad's gun and ended his life. And I, I guess I was curious in those interviews, were people rethinking their relationship to guns as a result of that tremendous loss? And I found, you know, when people came to talk to me and I told them quite openly why I was there, when they came to talk to me, they would come wearing camouflage and bringing their guns very often. And part of why that was, was to show me that their relationship to guns was very powerful. And that what they told me was, um, this has reaffirmed our belief that it's a question of, uh, it's not the gun's fault, it's a question of the person. Now, what, what I would push back on when I would tell them was, when I would talk to them was, well, aren't there policies that could make things a bit more safe? And very often they would say, yeah, I think I could support background checks or gun locks, uh, things like that. So there was a diversity of opinions, but certainly the idea that a traumatic loss was going to change anybody's relationship to a gun was, was I think, a, a fantasy in a way. It's interesting. Something I've been thinking about with this body of work in particular is is, you know, your research shows the negative impacts of these policies, shows how people's lives are made harder, sicker and shorter, as you said. And I'm curious how you kind of navigated talking to your subjects and kind of approaching these different topics with people without coming off as either confrontational or condescending in some some way. That seems like a tricky sort of balance to strike. Well, I was so grateful that people were honest with me and, and let me in. Now, certainly the people who didn't talk to me, well, obviously they're they're not represented in the book, but also, you know, there were probably people who were probably more in more extreme positions who didn't want to talk to me in the first place. But I would say, again, I did not go down there to judge. And I, did, I make it very clear in the book or try to throughout that I didn't in any way try to change anybody's mind. I actually think it's a profound liberal fantasy that we're going <laughs> to, I mean, it's funny after having written the book, I get asked very often, what can we do to 
change Trump supporters' minds? Mm -hmm. And I feel that's the wrong question. And I'll tell you why in a second. But I'll say first that I I was so grateful to be let into these conversations. And I did really learn a lot, humbly so, about the ways that people navigate very complex systems and and situations in order to stay alive, Mm -hmm. in order to keep the material realities. I mean, you know, people have very hard circumstance. And so sometimes this sense of protection was very powerful for them. I gained, I gained an appreciation for that in quote unquote gun country. And, and I tried as best I could to be open. I didn't, I didn't lie to anybody about what the book was about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said like, hey, look, let's, let's try to have a conversation about this. And I do find across the board that it's, it's true and pretty much across the board in life. But on Twitter, it seems like we all automatically hate each other. You're either one thing or another. But when you meet somebody in person, very often there are so many other factors at play when you engage with somebody other than just red or blue. And so I did really try to I really did try to understand what what people were doing and why these ideologies were so powerful in their lives, even when, in my mind, the negative effects were so so obvious. And so I, I, I really appreciate the question, and I, I really hope that people who I talked to didn't feel judged or used by me. But of course, I realize that's a danger in any kind of, of ethnographic work. Yeah. So So why is saying, how do we change someone's mind, the wrong question? I came away from this thinking that the real drive to change here are two things. One is... I really think it's incumbent on white working class communities to actually demand more of their politicians. In other words, I think you can be Republican and I'm not. So I'm speaking as an outsider, but I'm, I'm not anything. I don't I, I don't think of myself as in any particular camp. But I did come away thinking that it was really sad that people who were in this particular camp it was so powerful that it didn't let them demand better health care, better roads, better schools. I talked to people in Kansas whose own kids' schools were being decimated by tax cuts put in place by the politicians they elected. And so I felt like there needs to be some kind of groundswell that actually comes from within the conservative community that demands better conditions, better health care, better services, factors like that. And until that happens, I, I can't see that it's like somebody's going to helicopter in and change people's minds. But it did seem to me, again, I reject that people were uneducated. I reject that they were in any way naive or dumb. They were, they were, I mean, yes, there were some very, very complicated racial politics that I found very, very uncomfortable and very troubling. But I would also say that at the end of the day, people were trying to get by for the most part. And, and it seemed to me like there needed to be some groundswell of something coming from within that demanded better from their, from their politicians. The other part of that is that it frustrates me that people on the Democratic side just write off the quote-unquote base as if it's like some huge big rock that's never going to move or something. But there's a long history in southern states of people making very strategic decisions based on politicians that seem to speak to their interests and policies that do so. And so it also made me think that if phrased the right way, there are ways of reaching out to people in a way that could better the lives of everybody. And I feel like the Democrats should pay attention to that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's like 
The list is very long, though. Like, as you said, the, we talked about taxes, the ACA and guns, but like the list is much longer than that. There's climate change. There's tariffs hurting farmers. There's taking away funding from treatment centers for people with addiction, which is a huge issue in these very communities that you're talking about. And so I struggle with like how long that list is and sort of what is that thing that will create a groundswell within that community to make change? And what what is holding that back? One thing that's very important to know, and I agree with you about this list, it's it's exponentially, it's, it's very, very long. And um, addiction is a great example. I mean, deaths of despair in white working class communities are skyrocketing. As a result, white working class communities have shortened life expectancies. It's unheard of in a civilized society to have that kind of trajectory. Um, I, I think it's important to note, though, that it seems to me slightly unfair to just say that this is about a construction of whiteness mm-hmm. without also recognizing that there are powerful forces that benefit from keeping Americans polarized, from keeping us feeling like there's no way we can ever agree upon anything. Certainly, Our friends, the Russian bots, figured that out in the last election. But I found so many examples in in my research of areas where people seemed pretty reasonably willing to compromise on the ground for the most part. But then there were these scripts coming from above from much larger financial interests that told people there's no way you can ever compromise because that's treason. And I'll give you one example. When I was doing my gun research, I went through all the history of gun advertisements, and so many of these ads played to this idea of lost white power or lost white authority. There were there was an ad for a Bushmaster semi-automatic rifle that basically said, you men have lost your man card, you've lost your masculinity, and you've lost your privilege, and to get it back, you need a Bushmaster semi-automatic rifle. Other ads for other gun manufacturers talked about restoring the balance of power. They talked about the armed citizen who was defending against the non-citizens. And so, in a way, what these ads were doing was conveying the message that in order to regain your your lost sense of identity, you need to have this weapon. And so I felt like there were powerful, powerful financial interests that kept pumping in these messages that you can't, you can't in any way compromise because you'd be giving up you're not just your political identity, but your manhood and your white privilege as well. And what it made it harder for people to see was I felt as an observer that so many problems were being created from above, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, the material problems that many people faced in their lives were because of policies put in place as a result of corporations or wealthy donors, uh, other things like that. But when all the energy was pushing them to look at the anxiety that was coming up from below, you know, immigrants coming across the border, it blinded people, I felt, to the fact that they were in many ways being pushed into these positions by corporate interests that were very often beyond the purview of the critical gaze of, of people who were experiencing them. Yeah, I, that, I think that's a really good point. I'm really glad that we were able to cover that in this interview. I mean, because as we see now, those divisive narratives, that rhetoric is all the way at the top now. And, you know, in national politics, we see it coming from Trump and it's strategic. So, yeah, I'm glad that, that we were able to cover that. I just uh, have a few more questions and then we'll wrap up. Please. Um, so you talked about 
lessons for conservatives. You talked about lessons for Democrats. And I'm curious, like, what are the lessons that progressives can learn from your research? Well, in many ways, I'm encouraged by the rise of the progressive movement. I think it's an important potential um, for possibly cutting across racial lines and crafting policies that are beneficial for for everyone and particularly so for working class people. And so I think that as the narrative, the progressive narrative spreads, I'm hopeful and I think we're already seeing signs of this that it might spread to encompass conservative politics as well. And it's probably why the Republicans are attacking the heads of progressivism so actively is because there's something very threatening about this idea that, you know, going back all the way to Reconstruction, that people are going to unite across financial lines, economic lines, not racial ones, would be tremendously threatening to the capitalist system that we have. And so in that way, I think it's encouraging. And I say that in part not because I want to overturn the system, but because so much research shows that more egalitarian and horizontal systems actually benefit everyone. More diverse systems benefit everyone. And so I I talk about this in the book as saying there's tremendous potential that if we have a more equitable society in that way, actually everyone's health benefits, even people who are upper and middle class. So it's not just a class-based issue. But I do think there are tremendous caveats in the rhetoric coming out of progressivism that concern me a little bit because I think that there are historical trajectories that they're going to come up against that makes them too easy to be dismissed. I'll give you one example. I think that the idea of government health care for everybody and the, you know the so-called uh, Medicare for all slogan is very important, right? But you can't just say that without recognizing that there's like a 50-year history of anxiety, racial anxiety in the South about what government health care means. And even eight years ago, 10 years ago, the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act lesson. And so there already are forces mobilized against the idea that the government's going to come in and give you health care. And so sometimes I do get concerned that people are just going to rally around this idea. You really have to take the tensions and anxieties about what a government system means for healthcare system into account. And in the book, I talk a lot about how there are a lot of racial undercurrents about that, that Republicans were able to mobilize in rejecting the Affordable Care Act, which basically said, if this system is socialist or equitable, it's going to take away resources from you and give them to these other people. And so I, I haven't seen yet a narrative that's going to address that history. And I, I would just say in the narratives of my book, it's important to look at really what people assume when they hear the word government health care and to think really hard about that, because I think there's a fantasy that people are just going to rally behind that. And I think there's a lot more hard work that has to go into it. Um, The second is about guns. I'm certainly somebody who's for common sense gun reform, as are many people. But there are long histories in the South of, and many places about gun ownership linking to identity. And so just saying, we need more background checks, we need more this, we need more that, which I support, I still think you have to take account of the meanings of guns in pro-guns community because they're the people you want on your side, right? And so I think the narratives here as well need to take account of history and other factors. And so again and again, I've thought these are great. There's a great potential here, but there also are histories that I feel like should be taken into account in constructing the messages. That's really, really interesting. Um, My last question is, how have people been receiving or reacting to your book? What kind of feedback have you been getting from readers? Uh, The book has just been out since last Tuesday, so it's it's relatively 
hot off the press. And this is one of my first interviews about it. And so I think that the story of how the book plays out will be told o- over time. I've, I've been very encouraged so far in that I think that there is a hunger in this country to address these issues. And I think a lot of people have been wondering these kind of questions. Why is it that people seem to support policies that are so antithetical to what seem to be their own interests and their own livelihoods? Is it true that the wage of whiteness is not just a financial wage, it's also a biological wage? And what do we do to combat that? And so I don't purport to have any firm answers about what that means. We're all debating these questions as a country right now, and I'm just hopeful that the book will play a small part in in fostering that conversation. But I will say that so far, based on the responses that I've received, and I, I feel I feel encouraged that we can begin some productive conversations about it in ways that might move us forward a little bit. Well, thank you so much. This was incredibly thought-provoking, really, really interesting. Thanks so much. Really my honor. You can read the full article at tonic.vice.com. And make sure to check out Jonathan Metzl's book, Dying of Whiteness. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to tune in again on Wednesday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 